our clutter is unconscious. Our clutter is just simply the external manifestation of what's going on in our internal space. And so oftentimes we're just not paying attention. So the first step is just to slow down, stop, and really listen. You know, what is going on in my world? What is going on in my room? What is going on in my heart in this moment of now? Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the KonMari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified KonMari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Our guest today is Dr. Melva Green, best known for her work on critically acclaimed A&E series, Hoarders. Dr. Green is a psychiatrist and spiritual healer specializing in real life living. She is the co-author of Breathing Room, Open Your Heart by Decluttering Your Home. It's a wonderful book of that has a blend of personal stories interwoven into a clear, practical guide on decluttering mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Her dynamic approach helps us to demystify this cluttering business, release the judgments when things start to pile up, and honor our sacred messiness as a path to a greater self-awareness. Welcome, Dr. Green. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Dr. Green, here at Spark Joy, we often discuss major moments in our lives, epiphanies or turning points that really shift our trajectory or kind of change our course. Uh, These stories, they often involve letting go to course correct or attract what we truly want in life. So could you share a personal experience of letting go that led you towards writing your book, Breathing Room, uh, with co-author Lauren Rosenfield? Absolutely. This, everything about breathing room, everything about me being on hoarders was all a process of letting go. In 2011, I had nothing less than what you'd consider an existential crisis. (laughs) I really was, I was evaluating my life and doing a tremendous amount of introspection and I was not happy. Mm-hmm. I did not have the space. I did not have the room to live the life that I knew I was meant to live. I was really just going through the motions. And I even began to feel as if I had something that's referred to as imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I started to feel like I was not really doing what I was supposed to be doing. It just was not comprehensive. It was not full. I've always been a very intuitive person from childhood. And I pretty much suppressed all of that because I didn't really know how to integrate that in in my world and in my Western medical training. It just kind of didn't fit. So I closed my practice and Mm. I moved to Costa Rica with basically a little bit of savings and not much of a plan. And my son's father, probably pretty sure that I was losing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it, it was one of those things where there was no, there was no in between. There was no looking back. It was only, I could only be right in that moment. And, and I, I knew I had to do it. So I stepped on the path of 
really unpacking and decluttering my own life. I closed my practice. Um, I moved out of my house. I put my child in a Spanish immersion school and prayed that this would, I wouldn't mess him up too badly. <laughs> and, and then life started to fall apart yet fall together at the same time. <laughs> so within 48 hours after I closed my practice, I got the call from the network about coming on Hoarders. And I'd never reached out to the network. I'd never thought about being on television in that way. I'd done a lot of um, CNN, Good Morning America, uh, Mind and Mood special. I'd done a lot of that sort of stuff as an expert, but I hadn't been a part of the series. Mm -hmm. And somehow they found me in the cyber world. And I was very honest. I said, you know, I don't know if you really want to touch me right now. I'm like, I'm going through it. <laughs> And I'm like, and on top of it, I have, it, I'm on this path of really trying to understand things from a more holistic perspective and really understand the mind, the mood and food and rest and breath and in a way that makes sense to me. And so that's, that's where I am. And, and that may be a little too woo woo for, for your audience. And the response I got was, well, if it's too woo woo, we'll just edit it out. Wow. <laughs> and um, so I said, well, okay. And the other part to this is I'm moving to Costa Rica. <laughs> and, um, and I was asked, well, will you fly from Costa Rica to film the show? Oh, and, oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that too. So by taking that leap of faith, by really letting go of what was, was basically suffocating me, life opened up in ways that I hadn't even imagined, that I hadn't even considered um, possible. But that's where I really began to, to step on the path of, of, of really reclaiming my full self and getting a true sense of what is it that I believe? What is it that I'm here on this planet for? And then I met Lauren. Lauren had watched uh, the show. My co-author mm -hmm. had watched the show. And I was in Costa Rica and she reached out to me and she said, I'm a fan. I love your work. I love your style. And I've got this book idea. Would you write a book with me? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she's a student of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the um, spiritual teacher and, and, and monk and, um, and she had a strong meditative practice and um, she believed in what I believed in. And, and we put together this idea and then Breathing Room was born a year and a half later. Wow, that's a great story. Um, I love the, the risk taking and having it pay off so quickly and in such a clear way is, must have been extremely rewarding and gratifying. Yeah, it, it was it was rewarding, gratifying, and a little discombobulating at the same time. <laughs> I can only imagine. Uh, yeah, a little discon discombobulating, but at the same time, it's one of those things that it's like the universe's wink, mm -hmm. that you're on the right path, you know? Right. Like you're completely setting your life ablaze, but it, that blaze is like burning down everything that's in the way. Right. And making a way for what you're really here to do. 
So Dr. Green, you take a spiritual healing perspective in the work that you do toward curing anxiety disorders, which is something that we can definitely relate to as KonMari methodologists, because of course KonMari is infused with a lot of Zen-based principles and themes. What impact has your spiritual healing approach had in your work with your clients? It's broadened the approach. It's it's broadened my approach. It's broadened um, the client's experiences. Oftentimes, people are very conflicted about anxiety, about obsessive-compulsive conditions. They're very conflicted about the therapeutic approaches, and, and understandably so. Some people don't want to just take medication. There's nothing wrong with taking medication, but some people, they have a lot of apprehension about it. And so once all of the organic causes of these conditions are ruled out, like making sure there's not a thyroid condition or some there's something else going on that's causing um, the anxiety, then helping people to kind of look at what their what all of their options are in addition to medication. What are the, what else is out there? What else has been tried? What is what is actually not necessarily the the most sought after or the gold standard, but in terms of the medical community, but what actually is out there that we actually know works from ancient age old wisdom. And so I think what it's probably done most is it's given patients, it's given clients permission to pursue other paths. And, and I'm quick to tell someone, listen, you know, you've tried all of these alternatives, you know, for a while and listen, your life's a mess, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and we've got to look at and, and we've got to weigh the pros and the cons of taking this path. Mm-hmm. Um, it, look, we have to look at what, what you're also risking or, or what's it costing you in terms of your children or in terms of your marriage. Um, let's look at everything. Let's look very openly and honestly. So I, I, I'd say it, it's given people permission to pursue all all sorts of alternatives that they may not have looked at. And I also think it is um, reduced a lot of shame. Oh, interesting. So one of the things that, that Kristen and I talk about, and we talk about this with a lot of our colleagues, is how connected um, this organization seems to be with anxiety le- levels and anxiety disorders. And so many of us have experienced um, within ourselves and also working with our clients just the high degree of anxiety that seems to kind of run through um um, concerns about living space. And in, in Breathing Room, you take a deep dive into the connection between living space and heart space. How does this connection help help us with our decluttering um, missions on, on, on a deeper level in our being? So most of our clutter is unconscious. Um, it's not something that we're consciously aware that we're doing. Most of it is an attempt to adjust to the anxiety, to adjust to a trauma, to adjust to life. And oftentimes it's not really a conscious process of of getting disorganized. And then you have the added um, complexity, if you will, of being anxious about the process (laughs) of decluttering. You know, so wanting to get it right or wanting to attack the clutter and all of these things that 
only increase more, increase the anxiety. So one of the things I, I oftentimes say is like, let's drop this need to attack the clutter. Let's drop the need to attack the horde because that's going to burn out very quickly. That's going to give you an immediate adrenaline rush and then you're going to poop out. And then you're going to you're going to get into this cycle of being disappointed in yourself and then ashamed of yourself. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And there's there's a stagnation. So the anxiety piece is is huge and at many different levels, you know, both the performance anxiety, the anticipation anxiety. There are many different levels of anxiety that that are that are involved in 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 disorganization. Wow, that's that's definitely something we've run across as well when working with clients is the process itself can uh it, it gets a little messy, right? <laughs> um right. before things get get better. And even the fact that clients can't find certain things mm-hmm. temporarily will send someone down a spiral of anxiety um uh, as they're working on the on uh decluttering. I'm wondering if you've you've found that to be the case as well in your work. Oh, absolutely. So that's why one of the first things that I start with when I'm working with anybody is to get them to be kind to themselves. Sure. um, To move into a level of awareness that that this messiness is just a part of life. Um, This anxiety is just everyone gets anxious. Like this is, this is a part of life. And so shifting the, the mindset, shifting the heart space into more self-love mm-hmm. and tenderness so that they can actually harness enough energy to, to, to start the process. Because that's oftentimes where people stall the hardest is at the beginning. Um, because there are so many layers, there's so much stunting the process, um, so much, so many, so much that they put in their head that it's gotta be like this. And if it's not like this and it means this, so just kind of taking all of that off the table and saying, you know, this is, everybody's got mess. Yeah. Everybody's got clutter. Everybody's right. got junk. That's, I mean, that's, if you're alive, you've got junk. <laughs> if you're alive, you get, but it's not, the, the mess is, is, it's, it's not in the way. It's part of the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love if that. If you can just slow down enough, be tender enough with yourself and forgiving enough of yourself to realize that everybody is in this is is in this boat. Some people are just at different levels. I think there's that that's the adage you just made me think of. Um, the adage that says that we sometimes compare our insides to everyone else's outsides. And mm-hmm. I've heard so often with my clients, "Oh, this must be the messiest place you've ever seen." And assuming that everyone else has this perfect, you know, <laughs> picture ready lovely home with everything and everything is in order. And, and actually that's, that's almost universally not true. Everyone, even the tidiest person has day-to-day clutter that they're dealing with. Everyone, everyone. And if they don't, then there, that can be, that can be an indication that they're at the other extreme. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, 
you know, or in take denial. your poison. <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. Because I'm telling you, I had, I'm having some renovations done at, to, and in my own home. And if someone had come in today, they would have thought, are you really the doctor? Of <laughs> <laughs> or either that, or they would have thought I was being robbed. You know, it's just, it's funny. you know, wherever we, we all have these moments and spaces and times in life where things are, are turned upside down. So we have to be gentle with ourselves. Exactly. Leaning with compassion. Love it. Yes. So you have some really practical tools in addition to just, you know, really paying attention to this being an exercise of compassion and not attack or uh, force. Uh, you have this tool that you mentioned in Breathing Room called the Slice Method uh, mm-hmm. that I think would be really cool to share. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit more about that as well and how you apply it mm-hmm. to clutter in the home. Right. Slice is basically a a three-step approach to working with your clutter. So the first is stop and listen. So oftentimes, again, as I said before, our clutter is unconscious. Our clutter is just simply the external manifestation of what's going on in our internal space. And so oftentimes we're just not paying attention. So the first step is just to slow down, stop and really listen. You know, what is going on in my world? What is going on in my room? What is going on in my heart in this moment of now? And then taking a real clear Look, real clear evaluation. The second is the is intend. And, and that's really about looking at the space and deciding what are your three intentions for the space? What do you want that space to do for you? How do you want to feel in that space? How is it going to feed you as opposed to draining you? And then the third is, is clearing the energy. So getting in there and actually going through the process of clearing out the stagnant energy that is, is at the root of, of what's continued accumulation. Wow, that's such a clear look, summary of just all the things that we go through when we're thinking about clutter. I love that. Stop and listen. Intent. Check your intent. And clear the energy. Love that. Yeah. Clear out whatever is blocking you from actually having the energy in the space that you deeply desire. Very cool. Yeah, we love all different approaches here. Of course, Karen and I practice the Kamari method, but Mm -hmm. we recognize that when it comes to organizing, Kamari, just like minimalism and other ways of approaching clutter are all just tools in a toolkit and Mm -hmm. they all serve, you know, the same purpose to get uh, us to be kind of living better lives with perhaps less things. Um, So this is just one of those other tools. Slice. Love it. (laughs) It's awesome. So... Of course, uh, we don't want to let you go without talking about A&E Hoarders. Uh, it's in its ninth season. We are big sh- fans of the show here at Spark mm-hmm. Joy. And, you know, it's very interesting how the world has really become fascinated on this extreme hoarding I- idea. I have a lot of clients who like to self-diagnose themselves <laughs> as hoarders <I> often. <laughs> and sometimes uh, now that I'm, especially now that I'm in the field of professional organization, I I like to recognize that or help them to see that this is actually a a mental disorder Mm -hmm. and it should not be the term shouldn't be thrown around 
loosely. Um, it's it's very serious matter. So I would love if you could kind of break down the hoarding spectrum a bit and uh, maybe give us some telltale signs that would distinguish someone who is a hoarder versus maybe someone who is simply a collector or has a, a mild clutter problem. Well, I like to say that there's the clinical criteria and then there's the commonsensical criteria. And from a clinical perspective, it is the accumulation of possessions. It is the overvaluing of, uh, it's it's an assessment that exceeds the actual value of what they're actually holding on to. But the quintessential criteria for hoarding disorder, which is now its own diagnosis, it's no longer, it's no longer a, a sub-diagnosis in, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the DSM anymore. It's got its own diagnosis. The, the quintessential factor is the dysfunction, the occupational, the relational dysfunction that begins to impact an individual's life. So when someone is is not able to have an optimal life because they can't have healthy ingress and egress. They're not able to move in and out of their homes mm-hmm. in a safe manner. They're not able to maintain their relationships because they're now having more relationships or more attachments to inanimate objects. So their lives are in in disarray. That's usually the, the telltale sign. Um, those are the telltale signs that someone is meeting the, the clinical diagnosis of, of hoarding, hoarding disorder. But then there's this other, which I say is the commonsensical. If you see that your loved one is buying things in excess, is um, holding on to everything that they just do not want to let go, if they have stopped letting you come into the home, mm-hmm. if they've if they've started isolating, if you you smell a bit of an odor from the home or on them. Um, it's just, it's just common sense. It's just common sense of being able to really tune in and recognize that my loved one is, is hurting right now. And, and, and there's, they're attached to all of this stuff. Um, because typically speaking, the one who's hoarding is not the one who's coming for help. It is generally either the authorities a governmental agency, a family member, a friend, someone else, a clinician, someone else is recognizing that this person is in trouble. Um, that th- things are completely out of out of balance. I think it's very interesting that you talk about that because it, it does seem to me that there's always, not always, but there seems to be frequently an outside factor that comes up against the behavior that causes kind of a break or a shift. And that's when a, the, a person who who is somewhere on the spectrum begins to feel like they're losing control and that they um, are getting pressured into doing something about their issue, and it almost always is coming from someone else. Um, oh, absolutely! And, and I mean, I've I've worked with people who, from all outward appearances, are perfectly put together and function really well in the outside world, but they would never let anyone into their home. Um, and I think what's interesting is that I, you know, as we almost get as caught up in trying to define the disorder as we do in over diagnosing it. I mean, it's a spectrum. So there, 
there's there's no clear boundaries between one level of hoarding and another. At least in my experience, it's just a, super interesting to me to see the different variations in how people, um, you know, follow along this whole spectrum of of the of the OCD disorder. And but it, what's interesting to me is that the statistics are really out there. There are um, 19 million people who we believe are dealing with compulsive hoarding. One out of every 50 people are struggling with, with this disorder. Is there something in in particular that you feel causes or is a root cause of a hoarding situation? Do you think it's something that's genetic? Is it environmental? What do you think is the basis of it? Well, Karen, it's interesting that you brought those numbers up because I think those numbers are grossly um, in it underrated. I mean, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're, um, I believe that there's way more people than that. Interesting. The, the, the tricky thing about hoarding disorder, unlike other compulsive disorders, um, alcoholism, gambling, eating, oftentimes people can't, people get in trouble. Mm. You know, if, they, if mm. someone has an eating disorder and they become, they have anorexia, they become you know, emaciated, it's showing up physically, or someone is gets a DUI if they're drinking too much, or someone um, loses everything, or you know, the bookies coming to look for them right. if they're gambling too much. They can oftentimes get have a level of intervention earlier in the condition than someone who's hoarding because hoarding can be hidden for so much longer. Sure. The the environmental consequences of hoarding it can has the take such a long time before people are actually found out most of the time, which to me again both underestimates um, the number of people who are who are dealing with this and underestimates the burden, the public health burden that it is. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's far greater than we really even understand. I do not believe we've actually hit the tipping point just yet. We're just now, even though you know hoarders is in the ninth season, I believe that there's still so much more that we don't know. For the very thing that you said, there are certain people who are very put together and you'd never know. Right. You'd never know that they have this other life, if you will that they have this, 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 this other compulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and this, this level of dysfunction in this aspect of their life. So I want to, I wanted to bring up that, that particular point, but you asked the question is, do I believe that there is sort of a root cause? Um, we don't actually know what causes hoarding. It does tend to run in families. Um, but in my personal experience, it is trauma. Oh, in my personal experience, it is trauma. It is complicated grief. It is unresolved grief. Um, and which is partly why I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to work with people at, a, at both the biochemical level as well as the, the psycho-spiritual level, mm-hmm. because oftentimes there is some deep grief um, some deep loss, some deep trauma that they have not processed um, and that they have not integrated. And when you can actually help the person actually get to the core of the wounding, the core of the hurt, the core of the insult um, to the psyche, mm-hmm. that's when we can start to unpack. That's when we can start to actually do the healing work 
um, that really allows them to become, to, to disentangle themselves from all of the physical clutter, from all of the physical horde. Um, I've seen it with divorce. I've seen mm-hmm. it with death. I've seen it with, with sexual trauma. I've seen it all. Interesting. Yeah. I've seen it all. But oftentimes, you know, getting the person out of whatever crisis they're in is the number one priority. You know, if they're going to lose their home or they're going to lose their children or, you know, oftentimes, you know, first things first. But the deeper healing, the deeper transformation has everything to do with helping them to get to whatever that core trauma is. Yeah. And as you're helping them, it it often seems like you are fighting the toughest battles, at least from what we see on the show. Uh, You're you're definitely facilitating super major breakthroughs uh, that often seems like sometimes no side truly wins in the work and stuff. Um, But have you experienced situations where the resistance is just so strong that, you know, the person can't be helped or, or how do you handle those situations where you have either the hoarder themselves coming at you or the, or the family member just in such a aggressive way? In my career, um, and I've been doing this for about 14 years, I've had two where I literally just hung my head. Um, the, the resistance was so thick, the walls so high, there was no getting in. Um, and it is disheartening Mm -hmm. because you know, you know how the story ends, Mm -hmm. but they were so entrenched, so entrenched in the, the addiction, um, their own, how they were, protecting themselves or protecting their, their quote unquote valuables Mm -hmm. um, was so rigid that there was no, there was no getting through. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, that's when I really began to have another level of respect for this condition. Um, Just how, 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 how destabilizing and how harmful it can really be for a person. Wow, very sobering. Yeah, yeah. No, I've it's I've seen it, and and you know I've, I've also had the other side too, where um, so much damage was done to the family um, because in, in in my experience, the typically the success of someone who has this condition largely depends on their family support system. Mm-hmm. Those people who have the strongest support system, people who have folks here saying, "I'm not going to give up on you." Uh, I'm not going to come and spend the night, <laughs> but I'm not going to give up on you. Um, those people tend to do better. People who are isolated or whose family, they, they burn so many bridges that they really have no one right. um, in the way of a support system. They tend to continue um, to deteriorate. So I've also experienced the other resistance, that other piece where the, so many bridges were burned. Um, so many hurts were 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 delivered to the children or to the family member that I really couldn't get them to buy in um, to support this person in the recovery mm-hmm. process. And that's also another one where it also gave me another level of respect for the condition, just yeah. how much damage can be done to a family, especially to small children oh, um, yeah. when someone is suffering 
with this. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Sometimes, I mean, how, how do you even begin? Um, do you have like a do's and don'ts in terms of, of what to say or not say uh, when you're trying to either get someone some help or, um, or walking them through the process? I've, I, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've heard from a lot of people um, who I work with say, Doc, you, you, you say so little, but when you speak, it's like the earth moves. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, there's some, I don't speak. Oftentimes I don't say a lot because these are people who they have, they have no tolerance for space. They fill every space with stuff. So they're uncomfortable sure. with empty spaces. They're uncomfortable with, um, they're uncomfortable. And so I have a, I have an appreciation and an understanding that if I just, if I just hold the space for them long enough, eventually they can settle in and they can, quiet the noises in their own mind mm -hmm. long enough to actually get a sense of, of what's going on. So I, I really do a lot of suggesting that people stop and breathe, you know, mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of encouragement. I, I do a lot of mothering, honestly, you know, um, in the sense that I'm encouraging people and, and nurturing in, them in this process that is, from their perspective, pretty, pretty scary. Um, they're unpacking their lives and oftentimes in front of millions of viewers, right? So, um, or at least they have that awareness that ultimately that day is coming. So I do a lot of saying nothing, but holding a very firm and clear space for them to hear their own voice. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Well, we want to make sure if we have a listener out there who is concerned that they might be a hoarder or a loved one is a hoarder um, can be linked with some some resources. So if that is the case, Dr. Green, do you have a place where they should turn to if they would like to seek professional help? I, one of the greatest resources for me, because it's just so simple, is hoarders.org. Um, it's just a very simple website. It's nothing fancy, but it's got enough resources on, on, on there for people to get started. Again, to me, less is more. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I tend to not inundate people with a lot of resources, um, because I think that can just get even more overwhelming, mm -hmm. but that site actually has some, 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 some quizzes. It actually has some scales that people oh. can actually complete to see if they indeed meet the criteria for hoarding disorder. Um, based on the, the, the DSM's criteria, as well as there are a couple of others that are just, that have been created by a couple of psychologists that both integrate both the, the, the clinical criterion as well as the commonsensical. So that's where I would suggest that people start. And then again, always kindness. Mm. You know, I, I think that the, the greatest struggle for anyone who's dealing with any sort of addiction, any sort of emotional um, upheaval is there. No one can be harder on them than they can be on themselves. Sure. Um, so encouraging people and being kind and being tender. And even when, you know, someone's, you know, 
work the last nerve, you know, have a, have a sense of awareness that perhaps they're not just being difficult. Right. Maybe they actually have an unrecognized anxiety disorder. Maybe they actually are dealing with something that they, they're unable to articulate. Um, they're not able to actually put it in words. So, um, yeah, just kind of stepping back a little bit and, and, all of us just being a little bit more kind and a little bit more patient with one another. That goes a long way. That would go a long way in a whole lot of situations, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, kindness is a a pretty powerful medicine. It is. is. Absolutely. (laughs) So we have to ask, what is your favorite decluttering tip? Breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, breathe. Breathe. There, the power of the breath is so incredible. Again, we don't have to do everything immediately. When we stop and breathe, we are able to get a sense of what needs to go and what can stay. Oh, that's great. It, it's almost as if it just opens up and it speaks when right. we breathe. Right. So also a question we must ask at this very moment, what is sparking the most joy in your life? I'm the mom of a college kid. (laughs) My son just started at Stanford University two weeks ago. Wow. And I am so incredibly proud of him. He's just, he's, he's just joy. And I'm, I'm so full of joy and I'm so grateful that I didn't mess him up with all my hair. <laughs> <laughs> him up and taking him all over creation. <laughs> and, you know, he actually, in his college essays, he wrote about, you know, his, he wrote about me and kind of how I'm, you know, I follow my heart and what that has allowed and opened for him to follow his heart and to know that his voice matters and that, you know, he can do anything that he wants. So, yeah, getting to see the fruits of my labor uh-huh. um, through my son brings me the most joy. Oh, that's beautiful. And I'm sure he has <laughs> the most organized dorm room of anyone in Stanford. <laughs> funny was when I was getting ready to get him ready for college, when I was getting ready to pack up, pack him up and what he was going to take and what he was going to leave. And so he looks at me and he goes, okay, mom, I can see you're in hoarders mode, but I don't have to get rid of everything I don't need today. (laughs) I was like, "Uh, okay, you sure? But we got it. I, I, we were able to streamline it down to as much as we could mutually tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Green. It's been fantastic. And it was great having you here. Well, it's been a joy. It really has. And I hope that I've offered your listeners something that is of of, of benefit and use. Again, my position is, you know, there's lots of clinical criteria for this condition. But what I really want to employ is for people to really just slow down 
and to be compassionate with one another and with themselves Mm -hmm. because clutter is just part of life. It's, you know, we're never going to eradicate it. That's, that's, that's a setup for disaster, you know, um, be at peace, you know, do what brings peace in the, in the moment and, and pace ourselves, you know, don't be in such a hurry to just clear out everything because the fact of the matter is it's coming back. <laughs> it's just coming back. You can get rid of it all, but it's just coming back. Right. Wow. That's a really great. I really appreciate your message to our listeners and to us tonight. And to connect with Dr. Green, you can find her at drmelvagreen.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at dmelva. Dr. Green is offering our listeners a special signed copy through purchases of her book using a unique link that we will provide in our show notes. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. You can find us at sparkjoypodcast.com and click Ask Spark Joy to leave a question or comment for a chance to be featured on next week's show. You can also join the discussion on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the handle at sparkjoypodcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your host, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Conmari Media Incorporated. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Conmari Media Incorporated or the Conmari Consultant Community.